for the touch of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. Tonight on the show, I am honored and privileged to be able to talk to this man. I've been waiting for this moment for years now. Actually, I waited a very long time for his documentary, We Kill for Love, to come out. And now it's out. It's fucking phenomenal. And we have the creator right here, Anthony. Welcome to the show, Anthony. It is great to be here. Uh, you know, as you indicate, you have been following this documentary for a long time. Uh, I might have started the social media for this a little bit soon. It took me, <laughs> it took me six years to make this movie. Mm. And within six months of posting about it online, you began asking, so when is this coming out? Is it coming out yet? Is it, is it out yet? And I think this went on for years. I know. So, I think I sent you messages or, or you would post something like we're, we're interviewing so-and-so today. And I would right. just be like, when's it coming out? When's it coming out? When's it coming out? <laughs> <laughs> right. And so if you don't mind, I've been interviewed quite a few times now um, after the movie has been released on Blu-ray and all that. Mm. So if you don't mind an experiment here and just kind of reversing the polarity of the standard interview. Okay. Would you mind if I interviewed you for a moment? Oh, how fabulous. <laughs> not yes. only you're someone who recognizes names like Ed Holdsman, uh, Brad yeah. Bartram. Brad Bartram. Other, these, are, <laughs> these are really deep names in the erotic thriller genre and the 90s DTV genre world. And so to find another person, particularly another, you know, a woman who knows about all of these films and names makes me wonder, Erin, how did you find these movies? Okay. What a fabulous, I love this. Okay. So when I was probably 14 or 15 years old, um, I spent a lot of time watching television. I, I spent an, an an, an amazing amount of time watching Cinemax and watching Showtime. Um, so the first introduction I had to the erotic thriller genre was Gregory Hippolyte. It's the first absolute first thing. Um, right. So Carnal Crimes, I can remember. Um, uh, Night Rhythms was big. And I think the Mirror Images series, like it was like Mirror Images 1 and 2. And I was a really awkward kid, so to speak. So like I just rented movie after movie after movie from the store. Right. And that was pretty much my life, right? So, but I, I really, I loved that genre because it's a very female-centric type of a genre and... I don't know. It, it's just it's just much more interesting to see like the femme fatales and stuff like that. And and I, sure. I and I love I love in your documentary how you show all the fans and it's <laughs> the fans spinning right because right. I'm right. like yeah he ain't wrong 
<laughs> yeah, I I put those moments in the movie. What you're referring to is the sequence called the overhead fan. Yeah. Where you see the overhead fan in a lot of different erotic thrillers, and it comes to sort of symbolize the doomed lovers on the run, the fatalism embedded mm -hmm. in the movies, backdated to film noir. And I put moments like that in We Kill for Love, it's sort of humorous. It's supposed to be funny. It's like, isn't it funny that this person is taking overhead fans seriously? Why? <laughs> but I, I did that to inject a little comic relief into the movie, but also to kind of put forward something that the, the academic writers call the dichotomous structure of the erotic thriller, meaning anything can reflect the erotic thriller's abstraction that desire is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Dangerous desire, fatal attraction, sex and death, this central abstraction sort of permeates the right. genre. And so the overhead fan, the red car, you know, hot tubs and pools, all uh. of these things are places of the desire danger sex death dichotomy oh yeah but so you there's something really glossy about them you know like it like very specific to like the mansions you know i i was yeah. interested in how you showed the architecture of certain things because it was like yeah i've seen that house before you know <laughs> right well let me tell you erin i moved to california to make this movie I'd been previous, oh. previously living in Chicago and New York and Providence, Rhode Island and Michigan. And I had been living in the Northeast for a very, very long time. And so when I first started watching these movies in Chicago and started pouring through them, animal instincts, secret games, uh, mirror images, you know. Secret games too, the escorts. I also, secret games three. Secret games three, <laughs> which is one of my favorite secret games three. I also fell in love with that sort of magical enchanting world that these movies lead you into. So when I first moved to California and I began driving around all these neighborhoods, it was really surreal. I felt like I was in an erotic thriller, the houses, the, you know, the palm trees, the mansions, the Malibu beach houses. It's, it was just incredible. Every house to me seems like it was disguising, you know, dark secrets. Every house was a facade that was, you know, behind which was churning, seething with lust and dangerous desire. And, and I felt like I was just surrounded by the erotic thriller. It was a magical experience. And I still have that experience. That's so amazing. That's just so amazing because there's there's a lot of houses in Florida that are like that, like the neighborhood that I grew up in in South Tampa is mm -hmm. is very affluent and a lot of those houses are just like these big houses on the water and everything and every time i drive by them i'd be like oh it's like an episode of silk stockings you know oh right <laughs> right yeah a show which i love <clears throat> i've been filling out the corners of my silk stockings uh knowledge now and going back and watching some episodes and it's amazing to me how many actors and even started. a few directors yes. started off in Silk Stockings episodes. I mean, Lisa Comshaw's in several, Shannon Weary, Rochelle Swanson. Mm -hmm. They're all in episodes of Silk Stockings, which in many ways is like the erotic thriller light. Right, because it's, it's. I love, God, I 
love silk stockings. It's on my Roku. So yeah. it's like the first, you know, like I just like, well, yeah. yeah, time to go to bed, but not silk stockings, you know? Um, so <laughs> I really, I really enjoy it. I love the structure of it. I, I love how they're trying to pass off San Diego as Florida. That's very cute. Yeah, right. Um, and I love, but I do <clears throat> really love like the houses and that all the, the intrigue and the murders and everyone's rich and everyone's bored. Right. Yeah. <laughs> They, they live in this rarefied atmosphere of, of wealth. And, you know, as Linda Ruth Williams articulates in the documentary, they don't have messy pets. They don't have children. They don't have all the other things. They just sort of live in this fairy kingdom. And I, it, it gets really incredible sometimes where, like, sometimes in erotic thrillers, a couple will enter a room like a living room or a bedroom, and the candles are already lit. Right. <laughs> Like, like there's some cadre of unseen servants who are quietly going around like the Oompa Loompas oh, of the erotic crazy. thriller and they're lighting candles for people and stuff. Here we go. Let's <laughs> got to get that hot tub ready. Hold exactly. on. Yeah. Exactly. Everything has been lit and pre-prepared. Oh, it's always, and it's always very like soft focus and yeah. everything is so beautiful and everyone looks amazing in the shower. And <laughs> right. I mean that, that whole open, the whole opening of mirror images too. It's just bananas, right? Because you've got Shannon Weary. She's just fuck-ass naked in the shower. And the shower scene is a, a real deal trope of the erotic thriller. There are so many shower scenes. And I think that on one level, you can look at the shower scene as it's simply an excuse to load softcore content into a movie like nudity okay oh, yeah. yes it is but i think it does another thing for the movies and i think that when you see people naked in a thriller mm. when they're surrounded with danger right it adds a level of the vulnerability that most thrillers don't have because when people are naked, they are at their most vulnerable. Right. How many times have you been in the shower and you've heard a bump oh, in, God. The night or in the the house? Oh, and totally. Thought, well, I'm completely naked, you know? And yeah. so I think that the nudity in erotic thrillers, yes, at face value, it does serve that kind of voyeuristic quality of seeing people naked most people don't even like to look at themselves in the mirror. <laughs> so the, the erotic thriller affords us the opportunity to see yes. beautiful naked people. But at the level of the story, it adds vulnerability that I think that a lot of movies wish they could add or don't have. And I think the, the vulnerability of nudity dates back a long time. I'm not a scholar of art history, but... If you look into the history of art, you see that there's a lot of paintings from the 16 and 1700s. You know, you'll have an ancient Roman ruin, you'll have a lake, you'll have trees, and then you'll have a naked woman just reclining matter-of-factly. Right. Why did they include naked women in these paintings? Was it just because back then guys wanted to see naked ladies? Or does the naked female form add a dimension of the vulnerable to the proceedings that having a naked woman makes the entire thing more vulnerable? I don't know. Again, I, I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer to this question, or but 
it's been going on a long time. So I think the erotic thriller, uh, comically in its own interesting way, was restaging these concerns around the naked form. And I think it can be looked at in a more elevated way. It doesn't just have to be they're naked people because, you know, people are just voyeuristic. Right. No, I don't think it has to be that. And I think there's something very artistic about this genre in general, you know, Mm -hmm. just uh, the way everything is staged, the way everyone looks, there's no like, no unattractive people these movies like i mean everyone <laughs> yeah. from like your therapist to you know right. the 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 guy who picks up his wife who's a maid you know what i mean like if you look right. at like look at a uh, mirror images too for instance right? right you got ken stedman as you know the the husband of the maid you know That's you've right. got shanna wary right. luca Bercovici is her you know i guess it's her husband i don't know <laughs> um everyone's in the movie is is just attractive and that's right looking to walk on the wild side like that that's how (laughs) i would describe 90 percent of erotic thrillers uh especially from especially greg hippolyte especially that right roni hippolyte stuff is woman bored housewife rich wants to walk on the wild side Right. Yeah. The, the, the sort of, um, as the tagline for a secret game says a journey to the dark side of desire, right? That right. These women are sort of crossing over. They're sort of crossing a threshold away from the feminine mystique, which is mm-hmm. that, Oh, a woman should be totally satisfied if she's a homemaker and has a home and a husband, what else could she need? Right. And, and so she follows her desire to this dark world. So what you're pointing out, I think, is something that became very enchanting to me when I first started watching erotic thrillers. I came to erotic thrillers through the front door, like most people, fatal attraction, basic mm-hmm. instinct, ah, body heat. Okay. The, these movies are often these sort of man in crisis narratives backdated to film noir, you know, like body heat's a perfect example where William Hurt gets involved in this dangerous affair. He gets screwed over by the woman. He winds up in jail. She winds up on the beach in some remote exotic location. And I thought that all the erotic thrillers I was going to find were going to be like this, these kind of guys screwed over by femme fatale stories. But when I found the Gregory Dark, the Gregory Hippolyte erotic thrillers made by Axis Films International, and there's about 25 of them, I really stumbled into a world that I didn't expect. And that was that these were really psychologically penetrating stories about women really on the borders of civilization. As a matter of fact, I think in Animal Instincts 2, it starts with Shannon Weary moving to a neighborhood that's just some remote neighborhood and right. she's all by herself right, exactly. and she starts, she gets a crush on the guy who lives next door. Who's like a, secu- a home security surveillance technician. Aren't they all? <laughs> yeah. And so she's got a crush on him. He develops a crush on her. He secretly pl- plants a camera in her bedroom 
and he's surveilling her from his own house, but he's married to a woman played by uh. Elizabeth Sandifer. And the whole thing was not the typical Alfred Hitchcock film noir body heat kind of story. It was this dark story of suburban alienation yes. with a woman at its center. And it was hugely attractive to me. And I began finding more erotic thrillers that were that kind of story. And it was just unexpected and I just couldn't watch enough of them. Yeah, they're really, it was so funny because I'm watching this documentary and I was so excited to watch it. I was like, I'm going to pay in money here, you know, like, <laughs> well, like thank here you. we go. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I was so impressed with just the wealth of movies that I was like, wait, I don't think I've even seen that. Like it would just, you know, there were just different ones, but I mean, like ones that are some of my favorites, like, um, Dangerous Touch. I freaking dude, Lou Diamond yeah. Phillips. That's a license that's a print money. Film. I love him so much. Yeah. Um, and that movie is just like, rare, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <Really>? Yeah. <laughs> it's like I am Lou Diamond Phillips. I am here to have sex with you. I'm writing. I'm directing. I'm yeah. starring. You know. Right. Like good right. for you, bro. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> like... You've seen Andrew Stevens, but have oh. you seen me? Right. He I know. Put... He totally put sets himself up as the the, the competition for Andrew Stevens trying to out hunk. Oh Andrew yeah, Stevens. and it's very difficult to do because I yeah. adore Andrew Stevens. Yeah. I I love I I absolutely adore the original Night Eyes. I love all the other ones that came after it. I Same here. I love him, and he did a, a really cool horror film that a lot of people haven't even seen. It's a Canadian horror film called Red Blooded American Girl, and wow. Mm. I have not seen this. Mm -hmm. It's him, Christopher Plummer, Tim Coates, who I, ah, oh, my heart, and Heather Thomas. So, oh, wow. yeah. Uh, and, and it's just a great, like, kind of a take on vampirism, like a modern vampirism. You oh, know? cool. And, yeah. uh, and just a really cool movie. But yeah, like, super hard to find. Dude, I have the box cover over here. <laughs> no movie to speak of. <laughs> someone one ex-boyfriend or whatever ran off with it okay don't oh, have it so i just have a sad amazing. box cover looking at me but it's a really it's a really good horror film that was kind of when i i got my introduction to andrew stevens and then night eyes came and then night eyes two and then right. lots of other stuff just because uh, he's solid he's a solid actor he's he he's totally solid and he was a, a huge driver at an early stage for the direct-to-video erotic thriller. And he laid the groundwork in so many movies. And of course, his film companies like Sunset International, which he did with Jim Wynorski, and then of course, of course, Royal Oaks, mm. which produced so many erotic thrillers. And they're all really fun. His own films, I think, like um, Night Eyes 3 and Scorned were not oh. produced at, as Royal Oaks films. He did those in partnership with other people, but yeah, they're all really good. He's just he's such a um huge figure. Well, Scorned is just wow, chef's kiss. Like yeah. you can't get Scorned is top 5 for me. Absolutely yeah. top 5 for me. Same um, here. I I bought that the they released that on Blu-ray in Germany. Oh. And so I have a Blu-ray copy of that movie. Uh That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's really tremendous to see these movies like for instance they recently rescanned Dangerous Touch. And it's available in HD 
on you know on uh, line you can find it on streaming services oh that's great that's great I, I think it's on tubi but it could be it's definitely on voodoo and amazon and right. scorned was also you know rescanned and it's really incredible to see these direct-to-video erotic thrillers rescanned and presented in widescreen you know they'll they'll scan they'll center cut the thing and it's just amazing to see them in this way I yeah. just can't get over it. When you see a movie like Dangerous Touch or Scorned and it's in pristine high def, most people don't realize that they're called direct-to-video films, but most of them weren't shot on video. They were shot on film. Oh, they had to be. okay. They had to be I, shot on film. I did not actually I have to see. <laughs> nope, not happening. Okay, I, I actually didn't know that. I didn't know what the... Uh, like if like what it was if it was film if it was shot on hd because you, you take something like uh married people single sex right right which is shot to look very much like a documentary it is right it lo literally looks like you shot it on a high eight you know yeah like you're in that particular case i'd have to review married people single sex and the sequel uh -huh. there, that was so deliberately a documentary style movie maybe some of that was shot on video i'm not sure I'd have to go back and look at it. You're amazing that you, the, these movies are at the tip of your tongue, though, because <laughs> nobody talks about these movies anywhere. That That's a Mike Sedan movie. And the original Married People Single Sex, it was so innovative. Oh, very I, much. I've tried to think of what movies that movie was either trying to imitate or what he was working off of. You have the sort of cinema verite documentary style view into the lives of these married couples. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you have these sequences in which these people sit down and talk directly to the camera about right. their feelings and what's happening. Yes. I don't know where he was getting that. It was so early. I, I just don't know where Mike Sedan, what, what he was working off of. Yeah. I, that's a crazy question. Like that was one of those ones that I remember renting and just being like, Oh, you know, I mean my, I remember great story about playtime. So right. I wanted playtime so badly. It was on eBay and it was a VHS copy, but unrated. Cause I'm, you know, a purist and I wanted the unrated edition and my ex-husband on our anniversary shelled out a hundred dollars <laughs> so that I could have it on VHS. That is incredible. That is incredible. That is incredible that I'm talking to a woman who gets a copy of Playtime as a gift by your partner. That's incredible that you exist. I, I was you know. so happy. I was so, oh, so happy. I was like, you got to understand. Playtime is like <laughs> up here. Like play, Playtime is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, David Andrews talks about Playtime, Dale Trevelyan's Playtime. Uh, in his book, Soft in the Middle, it was a very oh, early okay. uh, softcore movie, and it was one of the first cameo Playboy funded movies. Okay, that and was so my they, other question. That to was you. a proof of concept for Playboy that when they started okay. in a clandestine way, they formed cameo pictures and they started giving people money to make movies. Playtime was an early success for them. And it was, it sort of helped them see the future. Mm. Uh, it was about married couples, everyone, the women and the men all are professionally successful and it's about their lives. And they were able to put in softcore content in a movie that was elevating and complimentary to couples audiences. Absolutely. I and, mean, and there's pretty innovative things in playtime. They have yes. a zoom meeting. 
in playtime. They're, yep. they're, they like zoom together. There's like, they all talk via remote video in mm -hmm. a sort of four quadrant kind of thing as nonchalantly as it took people until after the pandemic to be as nonchalant and used to zoom. But this was 19, what, 90, 91? 91, it was at early least. Yeah, 90s. very early 90s. And it was interesting because it, it, it actually dealt with a lot of subjects that couples do deal with you know they do right. deal with this idea of like well maybe we should open our marriage you know or right. perhaps uh you know or my husband's approved right and then they get right. deep into that 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 issue in the film you know where it turns out that he had this like bizarro sexual experience with his mother's friend and that that's why he is the way he is right. so which right. I mean, for some people, it's like an excuse to watch Julie Strand get naked, but whatever, like we need one, you know, <laughs> um, but but in the film, in the context of the dialogue, in the context of that storyline, it's like, oh, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, that's yeah. that's pretty like whew. they were okay. dramatizing things that were of interest to the couple's audiences they sought to market to. Mm -hmm. And and that's another reason why Playtime was so um so successful for Playboy and it was such an early template for, you know, movies that they were going to start making in abundance. I think when they saw that one yeah. of my favorite parts of playtime is when Mon Monique parent is in her office and uh, Jennifer Burton comes in and says, I want to see you. Can you go? And Monique parent goes to her little uh, thing and talks to her secretary. And she says, Dale, hold my calls. I'll be back. Right. And Dale is the director. I just thought that was a great oh. little moment that Monique must have improvised that calling her secretary, Dale. Dale. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> And then what I really, uh, there's one, there's a couple parts of the documentary that really like, I was like super, you know, like, oh, this is my time, you know? Um, <laughs> and one of them was when you talked about Indigo and you talked about Playboy right. and right. you talked about what they were going for and what they were doing. And I started thinking about directors like John Quinn, who by far is my person right oh really I mean, john quinn john quinn right. i mean hollywood's hidden lives right um you know uh oh right. god girl for girl you know i mean right. actually i think girl for girl is ed halsman but like the you know you, you have yeah. all those ones that came and out and i think that he was passion's cove the, yes. the show yes, i think he was. that he was the the sort of organizing executive for that whole thing mm -hmm. and other things secret yeah. seller I, yeah, he, he I love Secret bite. Seller. I have Secret <laughs> Seller. <laughs> you do. That <laughs> is that's a deep cut. Wow. Oh, Aaron, yeah. it's amazing. I mean, that's one of those ones that's like, what the fuck is going on in this movie, yeah. right? Yeah. Like you're like you're watching it and you're like, oh, I mean, it's you know, certain people show up and you're like, oh, okay, hey, there's that guy again, you right. know, or right or whatever. Um, yeah, then, John Quinn was more or less a, most of the Indigo films. Yes. The, the Mystique films, which outnumber them a bit, the in the middle, Mystique had a lot more different directors working. Okay. But but Indigo, certainly most of them are John Quinn movies. Ed Holzman and John Quinn mm -hmm. dominate. And that other guy, Robert Kubilos. Okay. Okay. And then but like Ed Holzman's one of those ones that you you know, you see like friend of the family. Right. right. Or you, you know, you, yeah. you get Pamela to, Principle 2. Pamela Principle 2. Yeah. Which Forbidden is, Games. Which is funny because Body Pamela Sports. Principle 1 is directed by Paul Thomas under a different name. Right. 
is, does he use his Toby Phillips? I think so. Yeah. yeah. He had I, a lot of those. <laughs> the first Pamela Principle to me reads a little bit like a comedy. It's it, it, a there's a whimsical movie. quality to it. Whereas Pamela Principle 2 is just this beautiful, rarefied work of Ed Holds many yes. kind of softcore. <laughs> yes. I Agreed. think Ed. I think Ed Holtzman is one of the great lost film directors of I America. I think that Ed Holtzman, the the beautiful style of his movies, oh. the sensitivity, the pacing, the tact and tastefulness, and just the they're so well rendered. I think that Ed Holtzman could have been a contender. Mm -hmm. I think that he could have made great movies. Not that he didn't. It's he's, he, you know, he, he just occupies a special place in these films, but it just puzzles me that directors like Ed Holdsman and Lawrence Lanoff and to some degree, Gregory Dark didn't go to that next stratospheric level and produce much more famous, you know, widely right. distributed films. Right. They hung out in this. And I asked directors about this very thing. When I interviewed them, I asked why. And Lawrence Lanoff told me, you know, he told me directly that he thought that there was uh, a glass ceiling. I think he called it the blue ceiling. Oh, you know, he felt that that work in this genre prevented people from going to that next stratospheric level that if you started off in it, it was difficult to progress because it began grinding against you. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know, I, I left some of that articulated in the movie and in the bonus materials of the Blu-ray, but I didn't dwell on it. Well, there's there's a time period and I, I can't quite put my finger on the actual numbers here, but there's a time period when erotic thrillers and the sort of late night uh, film style or whatever went from being tasteful uh, uh right. to to you know who let the porn people in you know <laughs> just right. a very just very much like ah like this got yeah. way way and then the it it seemed as though the budgets just went way down and the quality went way down um yeah. and the and the storylines just went way down you know it was like if you yeah even even the most committed erotic thriller enthusiast such as us can watch will watch some of those late stage mainline releasing group erotic mainline. thrillers there it is you know? yeah, yeah. And, and then later into the 2000s and it you just start getting the uncomfortable feeling that there's so much bumping and grinding going on that there's just a lot of the things that you loved about the genre are starting to recede. Yeah. You know, and they're just not taking enough time for them. And um, even Linda Ruth Williams in her book on the erotic thriller puzzles over this. She thought that even the most committed onanist, I think she was saying the most committed masturbator, that there's just too much in this one movie for for even that person like right. you know you can't keep it up for an hour and a half i think monique parent when i interviewed her said something interesting about this she thought that since a lot of the late stage erotic thrillers and softcore films were made for pay-per-view viewing in hotel rooms yes. that oftentimes hotel rooms would give you like six or eight free minutes 
Oh God. They would give you six or eight free minutes. Okay. And so they had to make sure that within every 10 minute block, there was a love scene or okay. some nudity because the viewers in their hotel rooms would only get 10 free minutes or six free minutes. And so her theory was that they were having to load the content into them for this reason. You know, oh, I, I think wow. it's an interesting idea. I'm just yeah. not sure about it, but it definitely does seem that toward the end, the mandates from on high was that every 10 or 15 minutes, there had to be a softcore scene of some kind. Yeah. Increasingly, uh less softcore odious for the people yeah it, it became increasingly <laughs> burdensome for the people making this to be in these movies where they were just having to do it hence i think what you just indicated was they just decided to start importing performers from the world of uh pornography oh yeah i mean and when you start you, seeing people in the world of porn start showing up more often yeah like i recognized that when i first started seeing chloe show up because i was like Meh. right you know right. like it kind of like because the right. dudes you know you've got your your danny Pape's and your um i can't i can't think of his fake name but um there's another there's another gentleman who i think his name is mark um who did uh uh the mas not the masseuse but it was like sexy <laughs> some kind of masseuse movie i can't even oh my gosh right now. <laughs> but um like body yeah. work you know or whatever right. it was just something right. like that so i saw him he would show up a lot of the time and i would just be like oh i love him like he's right. he can carry a movie um, I mean, you got like you take something like seriously, take something like Girl for Girl, take something like mm. Passion's Peak, um, right. you know, and you're those are movies that hold your attention because you're right. like, I want to know what happens. I want to know if this couple gets together. I want to know if that couple gets together. I want to know what's going on here. What's going on here? Like, it's right. actually interesting. And then I think what really is like the the cherry on the Sunday with those movies is the cinematography is Right. The way it looks, the the way that Passion's Peak looks, uh, in, in the way that Eden looks. I mean, the fact that they made right. shooting in Mexico look like it's like, oh, it's fancy, you know, like I mean, yeah, yeah, they all look beautiful, and a lot of there's sort of a some of the movies have that kind of synth wave blue and magenta kind of like neon noir look yes and then other movies like secret games three have that kind of soft focus emmanuel yes. kind of style absolutely and it almost looks like they're doing early playboy or penthouse that mm -hmm. sort of soft focus vaseline on the lens <laughs> kind of look and lady I like chatterly lady the lady chatterly look I love both of those. Me I love too. both of those. And um, any any of those visual styles are, are really great. And and certainly the erotic thriller sort of carried the torch for those. In the in the sake in the case of the neon noir look of that sort of magenta blue lighting, it's difficult to think of movies before that used it. I think maybe the erotic thriller spearheaded that look. Yeah, I really truly believe that. I feel like they really they figured out what worked and then they, you know, they ran with it. Yeah. You know? And like that's another great thing about the erotic thriller is that there were a lot of people tasked with making these movies, mm -hmm. cinematographers, directors, actors, writers, they knew the assignment, mm -hmm. but they also wanted to do something cool. They wanted to do something interesting. And I think one of the things about 
one of the reasons I made my documentary or thought that it was possible was that I knew there were all these people, they were tasked with doing this thing. They, they were making thrillers, but they were also making erotic movies. Right. And in the, they had to, thrillers were, there was a long history of thrillers, a lot of templates available. So it was a little bit easier for people to make a thriller, but erotic movies in the 1990s, there just wasn't many templates or films that people could see. We have to remember nope. back then there was no internet. Video was in its infancy. There weren't a lot of films on video. So a director like Ed Holtzman or Lawrence Lanoff, where were they looking to make an erotic movie? What movies were they looking at to say, all right, let's make that movie plus the Maltese Falcon? Uh-huh. Right. What was the what was the erotic film that was that plus the Maltese Falcon? I would love to talk to Ed Holtzman. Ed Holtzman, uh, if you're listening, please call me. If I only. would love to talk. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to talk to them about just this. I think there's a whole dimension of these movies that is lost and is worth tracking is the history and influence of the visual style and the erotic content. I'd love to know what movies they were watching. Very few people I interviewed knew the movies like erotic films of the 70s and 80s and could quote them. I remember Andrew Garoni, that Axis guy, when I talked about the visual style of the films, the soft focus photography, and then I mentioned like, uh, like the British photographer David Hamilton, he said, mm. oh yeah, Bilitis. He said, oh. I remember seeing Bilitis and I thought, wow, that, that was a fabulous rarity to meet a person who some of the names of 1970s era photographers or filmmakers, right. they mean their work at all. Yeah, it, it does. It makes you wonder the, cause a lot of like, like I know a lot of female screenwriters in the adult industry are influenced by people like Radley Metzger and right. you know those 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 pioneers you know and it would be interesting just to see like where where what the what the artistry come like where the artistry came from yeah where they where they were getting their magic because we can we can now because we have the internet and modern video and file trading sites and all that sort of stuff the average person now who gets into the these kinds of movies can get a much better bird's eye view of the landscape of this. Like you just said, like mm -hmm. Bradley Metzger, Joseph Sarno, Doris oh, Wishman, yeah. yes. all these people, they can, you know, it's easy to see, oh, these people laid the groundwork for it. And so they must have been influenced in the nineties by it, but that's not necessarily true because when you interview someone like Lawrence Lanoff or Ed Holtzman, you, they have to say, I saw it and oh, I liked mm -hmm. it. And that's what I was going for. If they didn't see that stuff, right. it's not really on the table as an influence. So when you spoke to Mr. Wynorski, for instance, mm -hmm. did he discuss any of his influences? Because in the documentary, that's not there. Yeah, that's funny. You know, I spoke with a wide range of film directors, uh, Fred Olin Ray, Jim Wynorski, they're kind of from the sort of B-movie world. Right. And they really idolized in their childhood the sort of Universal Studios oh. monster movie kind of thing. It doesn't take long if you look into Jim Wynorski, Fred Olin Ray, 
Oh yeah. To see that they influence that that's what they were really into. Right. Right. And I, and I talked with them and other directors that weren't as influenced by that stuff, like Lawrence Lanoff and Andrew Stevens about, you know, and Gorso about the movies that they were watching. I always tried to talk about influences and sometimes the conversation is successful. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes people are willing to reveal what their influences are sometimes not. Right. And I think in, you know, in Jim Wynorski and Fred Olin Ray's case, I, I definitely, in when I interviewed Fred Olin Ray, who's a colleague and counterpart to Jim Wynorski in many ways. Yeah. They even co-directed some of those late stage erotic thrillers. Dinosaur like Island. Dinosaur Island. Is a, is right. a double, is a double. Oh, that's one. right. That's right. And they appear together in a couple of movies uh, and they were in each other's films. They talk about the kind of movies that they wanted to make. And, and I, I think in many ways, as I profile in the movie, one of the reasons I think Fred Olin Ray made Possessed by the Night about mm. a sort of sideshow blob that's right. like a, a that, space alien or uh, something makes, from the world. That makes you horny. <laughs> that makes you horny. I think the reason he did that, because he was just, he had to go back to the influences of his youth to find something that he was interested in. Mm. And for me, I think that was one of my own favorite parts of the documentary and, and a part that I think is necessary is that the documentary is divided into three sections, danger, romance, and seduction. And during the seduction part, I run three interviews with three men, three male film directors in a row. I run Lawrence Lanoff, Fred Olin Ray, and Tom Lazarus. Oh, that's and, right. And and each of those three interviews are run quickly right after the other. And for me, what that part of the movie delivers is that it shows you, here's three men who are tasked with making an erotic thriller. How did they approach the erotic half of the equation? That is one. It's funny you should bring this up. That is one of my favorite parts in the movie. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, is where Fred's and, like, I'm. He goes, I. I mean, I don't. I don't. I'm not comfortable doing these these scenes. He's like, right. it's just sort of like I just. It's very technical. I just kind of right. figure out how it works. He frankly, then... admits to being a bit stumped by the yes. erotic part, and so he retreats to the monster movies of his youth, and he makes Possessed by the Night about a monster. Yeah, I love it. It's a B movie guy who loves B movies decides that the solving the erotic half of the equation for him is going to be doing that. But Lawrence Lanoff is different. Lawrence says, I felt, you know, Lawrence being the spiritual guru that he is, he said, I wanted to make a movie that my girlfriend could oh, find hot. I right. wanted to make a movie that was complimentary to couples. And I felt like it could be artful, mm -hmm. that it could be elevating for both people that, and so he, bonds with the female protagonist of his movie temptress and makes a movie about a woman and that's that's what he grabbed onto and then finally you have tom lazarus who just mines the naughty images of his past yes in, in i an, remember this yes in, <laughs> yeah, in an unapologetically perverse way absolutely he blasts was, all the stuff right. on screen he was like and, i just think about the stuff that gets me off and then i'll yeah. just put it on and camera <laughs> watching his films in that those four films that he made in a row 
you know, word of mouth, house of love, the voyeur confessions and yep. the exhibitionist files. Yep. It's like being, it's like standing in front of Tom Lazarus's fire hose of personal intimate, you know, perversities and fetishes and stuff. And he just blasts you with this stuff. And so that was his approach to the erotic is just that I'm going to mine this thing, my own brain. And I don't even care whether you're, you know, just, you're just going to have to sit there and take all this, this barrage of stuff that's stuck in my head. Right. If they're unapologetically perverse and exploratory and psychological in that way. And I love them for that reason. Yeah. And so I, each man in the movie describes to you, here's how I solved the erotic thriller equation. In just a different, but like in this like in different way. Different. Oh, it's yeah. so great. I love that part. I totally Me too. There's that's one of my favorite parts of the of, of the documentary is I really love that. I also love when I think there's a part where you just flash different ones on the, on the, like on the screen. And I'm like, looking at these titles going, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> yeah. like, Oh no, I've seen that. No, I've seen that. Oh, I've seen it. Right. Nope. I haven't seen that. I don't know what that is. What's that? You know, like I was, yeah. And yeah, I only managed to get 250 erotic thrillers in there. There's 700. So yeah, I, I only got a, a third and I, I made sure that there's a couple erotic thrillers in there that you can't even find. They don't have IMDb entries. Right. You, you're not going to, I know they exist, uh, <laughs> but I, I got a couple of those in there, I think, even the super mm -hmm. secret ones. And I also very much loved and appreciated the part where um, your, uh, your, your investigator um, is mm -hmm. looking at the box covers and he's like, I saw this box cover, but it's also known as this. And then oh, I saw this box cover yeah. and it's also known as this. Yeah. And I was like fascinated by that. <laughs> Another <laughs> comic relief part of the movie that I hope people <laughs> do read as comic. Yeah. I love that too. There was a chance to show, uh, how the movie titles change from region to region and how difficult yes. it is sometimes tracking these movies down. And there's so many more movies I could have put in there. You know, there, there are two movies called Shadow Dancer, released right? two years apart. I mean, you know, you there's know? like three or four movies called Double Exposure. No, geez. I could have made that sequence so much longer even. Maybe I should have. But thank <laughs> you for saying that. I, I just love doing that little piece. I think some it's been interesting monitoring the the reaction that people have to the movie, both formal reviews for publications and informal reviews online. And some people don't see the humor in the movie. They don't see that oh. that some of these things like the overhead fan. And oh, the overhead fan had things, me it's rolling. <laughs> thank you for saying that. And we showed the movie in Los Angeles people got the comedy of it that Good. the movie itself has this character this detective who sh demonstrates for you the patently fruitless task at hand which is to sort of put fences around this genre and make sense of it, it it's mm -hmm. maddening and so the person has to shuffle tapes on their Desk yeah. and oh, I, I love and, that whole thing it kind of reminds me of like where in the world is Carmen San Diego you know <laughs> right like he's oh right. let's see, see what erotic thriller can i find um yeah. yeah it's like you take a movie i think one of the first films that i had that i was like i must own this is um i like to play games 
because oh, right. oh my god you've got you know lisa boyle who is just good god with how yeah, hot she is you know what that's I mean? right and ken stedman you, again ken stedman rest in peace buddy or like, ken stedman oh my god that was horrifying yeah. be I, careful I, on dune buggies people dune buggies right and it was on the set of sliders it was just i was right. devastated because yeah, i man. remember hearing about it and i was like ken stedman from i like to play games like i was yeah know? yeah his <laughs> career was cut all too short all too short but a really solid actor and that is a yeah. very solid script you know that is right by david keith miller Oh, is that who that is? Okay. Who, who I exchanged emails with and tried, you know, I, there was a lot of people that I tried to interview mm, a lot. I'm sure. He was a very smart man and he exchanged uh, some really great emails and I got some really great information from David Keith Miller, even though he chose not to be interviewed in the film. He He's uh, he's such a great fixture of the movies. And of course, he, he was an actor also. And he appears later in We Kill for Love as the guy during the scene from Turn of the Blade where they're auditioning that woman. He asks her if she'll do nudity. Oh, oh, that's funny. And she says, sure, if it's tasteful. And he goes, oh. of course. <laughs> that, it's David Keith Miller. So I got him in the movie anyway. I, he's in the movie anyway. That was nice. That was nice that he did that at least. Um, and then you have, there was this like, there was this time period where you had all of these erotic series, right? You right. had um, you had erotic confessions, you had Red Shoe Diaries, you had Black Tie Nights, which I'm a Black huge fan of, such yeah. a huge fan of. Yeah. Um, and then, it, and it seemed like things were going in the right direction. Like it literally seemed like things, and then literally hard left turn, you know, where you were like, right. what is this? And you're like, oh, like if you compare, if you compare Black Tie Nights season one mm -hmm. to Black Tie Nights season two, night and fucking day for DP. Yes, that's right. So Just I haven't seen the second season of Black Tie Nights, but I've seen the first season several times, you know, all I love it. From beginning to end. It's just magical. Oh, my God. And it's Let's see. Is it on? Oh, yes. Okay. Whoa, you've got it right there. That is amazing. Black Tie Nights. Good luck finding Black Tie Nights the first season for less than $100 anywhere. Oh, I'm so excited. That cost me a pretty penny to get that DVD you just held up. That and Playboy's Inside Out. Oh, Inside Out is so hard to find. Eden, do not get me started on Eden. Eden was so difficult. I finally had to just pony up and buy pay for it because i needed yeah. it to be in the movie it's like two i've seen it on ebay for about 200 dollars. yeah it's just massively expensive Which they all are now it's so strange because i i and i i often wonder because like barbara allen woods who's the the main star of that movie right. went on to do um i think it's one tree hill is is right. that was the the sort of teeny right. boppery tv show mm -hmm. or whatever and um you know jeff griggs uh, is a is, That's right. is a huge staple in the gay film community, um, right, okay. and uh, and a lot of those people, oh, Darcy DeMoss, you know, Darcy who DeMoss. is uh, yeah. she was in Friday the Thirteenth, she was in right. Reform School yeah. Girls, Shannon you know. Weary was in Eden, and Michelle yeah. Brin, I believe. Michelle Brin is, is absolutely yep. Yeah. So you've got and like the the co stars and stuff like that. I mean, you've got yeah. all of these really cool things. Eden, mention, it's a great. It, like, it was really formative. It was really yeah. formative. And when I interviewed um, Richard Rossetti, the former head of worldwide production for Playboy at that time, 
you know, when he was hired in the early 90s to elevate what Playboy was doing and just make it better, mm -hmm. you know, they were in a bit of a quandary with the, the Playboy channel because the Playboy channel didn't have a lot of content and the content that they did have, a lot of it was sort of, re they liked it, but it was repurposed and they'd been experimenting with making better stuff. They just needed better stuff. And, and Richard Rossetti said, all right, I'll do it. You know, I'll, I'll, ma I'll make the better stuff for you. And he told me, it's just too long a story to get in the movie, but he told me that they put Eden together. They wrote it, they cast it, and they went out to, I believe they went to Jamaica and they shot the pilot episode of oh, Eden okay. and they brought it back. And he, you know, he intimated, he said that the political atmosphere at the time in that location kind oh, of affected Jamaica. the show. Okay. And he said it was so bad, they scrapped it. Oh. And, and they only kept Barbara Allen Woods. And he said through a miracle, they found a German company that owned a resort in Mexico called <gasps> Las Hadas in Las Hadas, Mexico. That's and it. so he convinced Hugh Hefner and Christy Hefner to refund a, a do-over. And so they went out and made Eden again. So that's, that's why Eden premiered in 1992. Right one year after the red shoe diaries which the red shoe diaries started in 91 or red shoe diaries is 92 and eden is 93 but they would right. have gotten eden out the door faster had they been able to move forward you know with the pilot and the re the rest of the episodes but there was some delay in getting it out the door probably by a couple of years because they just had to do it over and then you know Thank God they did because that Las Hadas resort they shoot in is really uh, amazingly beautiful. I wanted really. to go there so bad as yeah. a teenager. Like I was like, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to go stay at that hotel. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That, that was good. And of course that sort of pointed the way for them once they had developed Eden, which is sort of like Falcon Crest or Dallas, <gasps> but with yes. hotter, hotter scenes in it, they thought, okay, this is good. Let's move forward with making more of this stuff. It was so good. I, I, I love Eden. Eden was one of those shows where you watched it and you were like, oh, my God, is she going to end up with that guy? Or is she going to do this? Right. Is she going to fall for that dickhead who's actually in cahoots right. with Randy? Like, <laughs> Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and it also it also makes things like Falcon Crest in Dallas seem a little bit prudish because people can really kiss each other on Eden and they can smooch around and women yeah, there, there are, you know, bisexual and lesbian love affairs on Eden. And it makes you want think that this is a place where softcore can go places that I'm pretty sure the people writing, directing and acting in things like Falcon Crest and Dallas are probably kind of envious of. Yeah, that they probably wish they could make stories where they they could go there, but they can't. It was a it was a well-written, naughty soap. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, it, it was very influential. It was very influential. And, and Barbara Allen Woods is angelic and magical the whole time. Oh. Jeff Briggs is totally hot the whole time. I mean, everybody and, in that movie is like, yeah, absolutely gorgeous. And it's, you yeah. know, it's it's just great. It's, it's I watched the whole thing when I got finally got Eden on DVD, the complete Eden. I watched the whole thing within, you know, over the course of a week. And mm -hmm. So, oh, yeah. 
Oh, totally. Okay. Mm. I have a question for you because this is something I've always wondered. I do understand that full full moon has taken a lot of the erotic thrillers like night rhythms, like mirror images two, et cetera, mm -hmm. and put them on their full moon streaming service. Right. So there's a lot of this. Why is there not a its own streaming service where it's just softcore i mean is it is it because of the lack of demand <laughs> like it's just you and i like you and me aaron let's start this thing <laughs> let's do it that's it we're gonna start our own uh softcore service because i've always wondered that there's tons of hardcore services like i mean a million yeah, right. and things that you even thought like why is this even a fucking streaming I, service i think <laughs> i think the reason that there isn't a streaming service and more of it there's two reasons the first is that the ownership of these films is so distributed over so many different companies mm. that you could never be able to get these people to get together okay. um the one company called multicom entertainment okay. owns a lot of the dtv erotic thrillers of the wow. 90s okay their, their scanning technician came to the premiere in los angeles and he he emails me occasionally as he's working on stuff uh, and tells me if they're, you know, what they're working on, if they might have an erotic thriller coming out. It's very nice of him, you know. Oh. Um, so I, you know, they released, for instance, if you go, Multicom Entertainment does have their own streaming service. It's called thearchive.tv. I'm yeah. literally and, writing this down. <laughs> and I have a Roku at home. And so yes. the archive has an app, the archive.tv app. And so all of the movies on the archive.tv are in the multicom archives. And that includes, for instance, they recently rescanned in high definition the Harry Hamlin uh, erotic thriller Deceptions. Deceptions yeah, with Harry uh, Hamlin and with Nicolette, Nicolette Sheridan. Sheridan. <laughs> yeah. It is a marvel to behold that they found this movie and they rescanned it it's a it was released two years before basic instinct and so many of the tropes of basic instinct are in deceptions Ooh. so it's marvelous to watch for that reason as a, a pre-basic instinct basic instinct and um it's just a marvelous film i can't figure out what happens at the end of that movie but if you watch it if you figure it out please email me and tell me what happens i have no idea but it's a great erotic thriller but so multicom owns a bunch of those movies they own uh scoring with monique parent that's another paul thomas movie that he directed under the name toby phillips uh they own the dark side of genius and they rescan that in okay. hd wow uh, that's beautiful to behold okay. and others right so multicom but the Playboy movies, the Cameo, Dude. Mystique, and Indigo films, those have Playboy sold all of its media properties to an Estonian company called MindGeek, which oh owned, ew oh sorry we're gonna have to cut that the, out. <laughs> they own they own all the porn sites. I know exactly who MindGeek is. Yeah, yeah. and and subsequently, it. subsequently, Russian uh, PAL DVDs of some of the playboy movies started appearing online okay. but they were russian language only so right. that was a clear indication that mind geek in estonia had the playboy movies and they were digitizing their whatever's their betacam tapes or their d2 tapes and they were releasing them um but mind geek those properties have changed hands now a bunch of times 
and you go to the government copyright office and look up the copyright information on these films and they just get sold who knows where they are right now and so that's the second reason another reason that these movies that there is no streaming service for them is that the movies have been so dispersed in terms of ownership and then every single director and producer i interviewed i asked them where are the negatives where where is your movie nobody knew Uh, no uh. one knew where the negatives were they i think the negatives i mean i i just it's really depressing for me to think that there was once a giant dumpster where all the mystique movies the original Ah. 35 millimeter camera negatives just got thrown into some dumpster my heart it's just really depressing yeah i don't even want to think about that that upsets me so much hopefully there's a warehouse in estonia where all of the playboy films are in 35 millimeter cans or whatever i mean i just for my own sanity i have to believe that's the case i just feel like they're missing out i I feel like there's a lot of there's a there's a large generation of people who grew up watching these now maybe maybe at an age that they shouldn't have that's kind of how it is in the 80s you know or 90s rather but like a lot of us would pay a streaming service to watch you know passions peak girl for girl um you know uh, secret seller the the dark box the dark box Dark box. a gregory dark box all the gregory dark movies yes like why exactly right why is there no secret games box why is there no like here's all the really good greg dark shit you know like here's 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 the martin hewitt box (laughs) oh that would be awesome yeah yeah you know i i think hopefully if i'm not mistaken vinegar syndrome recently opened up a sister label called melusine oh Okay. I believe it was them, and and Melusine is devoted uh, exclusively to erotic Blu-rays. They're they're separating their erotic content from their main uh, sort of the mothership site, Vinegar Syndrome, and so Melusine is all the erotic films on, that they're scanning and releasing on Blu-ray. I think in many ways the independent Blu-ray companies like Severin Films and Vinegar Syndrome are really doing the work of archiving that our premier American institutions like the American Film Archives and stuff, the American Museum of the Moving Image, aren't doing. Right. You know, they're actually yes. getting a hold of these these lost movies of all kinds and scanning them and preserving them for future generations in a way that our our public institutions could do but aren't doing. And so I think maybe you might see that. I mean, I I never entertain the fantasy in any way that We Kill for Love would cause a resurgence in interest in these films. It's it's not why I made the movie, but maybe movies like We Kill for Love will cause people to want to see the films. It'll cause the owners to put them in the right hands. And maybe we'll see that Gregory Darkbox. I really hope that that happens, you know, because you think about, I remember how excited I was when I when I got married and I got like a little bit of money. I remember I would go on um, Amazon and I'd look for the unrated VHS copy of, you know, it was like Night Rhythms, Secret Games was a big one and Carnal Crimes was the other. And I sure. would just be like, purchase, 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 you know. Yeah. And my ex-husband would come home and be like, whoa, I guess well, what's, gonna, what's going on tonight, you know. <laughs> Keep on to those. They'll be worth something. You can flip all those one day for a lot more. A lot and more. they were, they were just, they were fun, man. I, I tell people about night rhythms all the time because yeah. that plot 
is bananas. Okay. That's it's right. Like, it's bananas. It's like you've got, it's like, well, Martin Hewitt plays a talk radio host. Remember what those were like in the 90s? Yeah, plays that's a right. Talk radio host who basically talks off women all night long that's while right. he's drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. And he is he is joined by his uh his lesbian sidekick, Delia Shepard. Delia Shepard. And and then one night Tracy Tweed shows up and says, put your money where your mouth is, partner. They have <laughs> sex. She gets knocked out. She gets killed. He gets knocked out. He wakes up and realizes we've been on air the whole time. So then he <laughs> has to basically like crisscross LA in a in in okay, in a leather jacket and no shirt. By because like he because basically he woke up and he was like I have no clothes you know and just like and ran off with like sort of have pants and a and a and a leather jacket everyone he encounters he sleeps with I swear to God he's like he's like you strippers will do oh a masseuse why not oh yeah I mean like he just it's like this is great Aaron this is like listening to the original pitch session for this movie I think the original pitch must have been exactly like this like, <laughs> and then right I mean but it's just funded a, right it's just it's such a ridiculous premise but then but then yeah. you've got the artistry of Greg Dark mm -hmm. you've got the way it's shot You've got the smokiness yeah. of it. You've got yeah, that the, saxophone. The yeah, the noirish Ashley Irwin soundtrack. Oh, yes, absolutely. You've got, you know, you've got, right, you've got the saxophones, you've got the mm -hmm. smoke, you've got just random it's people. It's got it all. That's true. It's got it all. It, yeah. It really, really, it's amazing like that because it's just mm -hmm. like, oh, my God, I love this. And Secret Games was one where, like, Michelle Brynn, I had only seen her in Posed for Murder. I, I think literally... I get that, and which Pose for Murder was also called Strike a Pose, and it was like right. a very almost shot on video ish kind of a thriller, kind of a thriller, right. you know, kind of a thriller, yeah, yeah, because it wasn't, it, it didn't have the tropes, right? It didn't have the tropes of the right. erotic thriller. It wasn't like that. It right. was kind of like watching like Die Watching or something with Christopher Atkins, you know, right? <laughs> it's like movies that make you feel like I should take a bath. <laughs> weird michelle um, Brynn, who was she was in some of those early playboy interstitials and stuff that they were making for the playboy channel and then she wound up in the in axis world yeah she's a star of secret games secret and she's games. a star of secret games too also under a different name wearing a brunette wig oh i did Forever not know that one that. out yeah Ma marie larue in secret games too is Michelle Lamoth. Oh, Michelle Lamoth. Oh, yeah, oh my it's goodness. The same person. And 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 believe it or not, I can go really deep here. In Oli <laughs> in Oli Sassone's movie Playback. Yes, Playback. Starring yes. Tawny Katane. Yep. Tawny Katane's husband goes to a video store and at the recommendation of a video store employee rents a naughty movie and he takes it home and shows this naughty movie to his wife, Tawny Katane, and they use it to spice up their sex uh -huh. life. Yes, and they it's do. this weird science fictiony kind of movie with a starring a woman. It was the woman in that movie that they rent is Michelle Brynn. Oh, that that movie is called Wet Wired. 
Okay. And it was made for Playboy to be one of their little fantasy interstitial things that they showed on Playboy. Oh, those lately. little mini things that would yeah, show that would pop which they up. They made a hundred of. Oh my god. More than a hundred of Playboy. There's so many. Secret yeah. Confessions, Fantasies, Playboy's mm -hmm. Interludes, Secret Confessions and Fantasies. There are so many. And yeah, so Michelle Brin appears in all these strange ways in the era, and then she just disappears. I had no idea. Like yes, the, she did. She totally disappeared. And like, yeah. I remember, I remember seeing Secret Games and uh, especially it was like, she go, you know, she, she goes to the afternoon demitas of right. the uh you know and uh you know Dealey <laughs> shepherd's running it katya sassoon is her best friend who's like you need to get laid by a stranger in a suit right you know right and then, and then it's right like yeah delia shepherd in that she plays like that sort of uh domineering matron of the bordello oh, yeah you know and she's perfect at it i love that scene in uh secret games when in in the remote bordello, which is the sort of remote Los Angeles mansion, uh, Michelle Brin comes down the stairs, and Delia Shepard is already at the base of the stairs waiting. But Delia Shepard is standing there, and she's got her hand out on this bronze statue of a naked woman, and she's like meditating at it, almost like she's charging her batteries. Oh my God, that's funny. Like Michelle Brin interrupts Delia Shepard as she's recharging with the ancient statue of this naked woman. And then the scene just starts. Oh and yeah. You have to be watching these like, wait a minute, what just, why was she there? You know, no. it, it's so amazing. So where do you see, to wrap up, where do you see the next step with um, We Kill for Love? Or is it going to, um, are, are they thinking of doing like, uh like a like are you thinking of doing it again and doing like a sequel to it or uh, no i so i felt very much like you know i when i would live was living in chicago in 2015 i liked my life i didn't want to make a movie that was going to take six years to make i you know i was just moving forward i thought maybe i would make a narrative film like mm. you know i start off as a narrative filmmaker and but I felt like I sort of got a calling to make We Kill for Love. I felt like the, the movie, a great disservice had been done to these movies, that they were really interesting and enchanting and amazing. And they'd been adopted by a predominantly male group of softcore enthusiasts who only <laughs> collected the films for the female nudity. And they were dragged through the mud. They were dragged through the mud online and they were dragged through the mud in reviews. And... I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. I, I will do this. I am, I'm going to make a movie that, if nothing else, allows people to see these movies as I see them. It's beautiful, enchanting, strange movies. When I started making this movie, I was 45 years old. I was kind of over the, you know, boobs and butts. Right. And there were, there were better places to get that. So I, I saw everything else. In these movies and it was that everything else that really enchanted me and so i set out on a i moved to california and i set out on a journey to make we kill for love and it took a long time it took a long time to find these people it took a long time to convince them to be in my movie it took a long time to make the movie and so i'm just so happy that i found yellow veil pictures my distributor 
you know, Joe, Justin, and Hugh. Uh, I am so happy that they picked it up and put it on Blu-ray. I'm so happy with how the movie came out. I had a premiere screening in New Orleans and a premiere screening in LA. It screened at a theater in Beverly Hills for a week. It's on streaming now. Like, I did it. I, I punched the ticket. I put one foot in front of the other, and I made this movie, and it's out there now. So I don't really have any plans to go back there. However, during the pandemic, when I couldn't do much else, I wrote a long, messy book about the erotic thriller. Oh. And and it there's a lot of material. I wrote the narration for We Kill for Love from the book book it's taken just pieces of the book are taken for the narration but the it's a very very long big book and I, and I think I could probably refurbish the book I think I could probably work it up into being something that's fun and interesting and I can go into much more detail about certain things than I could ever go into in the movie mm-hmm. and uh I collected a lot of things to do this, like all the videotapes and laser discs and DVDs and posters and trade advertisements and other things. And this would be great illustrative content for the book. So I could probably make a book. So I think if there's any next step for me, a book would be good. That would be the next step. And, you know, if Netflix ever came to me and said, Anthony, make a series for us, I think that they're, you know, looking into the erotic thriller as a film type of the 80s and 90s in order to do that you have to watch a lot of movies that are related and i wound up discovering while making we kill for love that the history of erotica in america on film is an interesting one and there are movies that try to put it out there that exploitation is one of them uh, there, there are movies out there that have tried to do it, but there's never been a series that from beginning to end over the course of six or 12 episodes starts with the burlesque movies of the 1920s and 30s or, mm-hmm. you know, goes through the nudie cuties, right. the, the roughies, the, the, um, the nudist camp movies that it get the Doris Wishman. Yeah. yeah. Until you get to like nude on the moon. Yes. Doris nude on Wishman. The moon. It's nudist camp, science fiction, fantasy. Plenty movie. of those here in Florida, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Ugh. And and so and then you get to the uh, 1970s and European softcore. And I think that there's a a really fascinating story to be told that's never been told all at once in one place, but uh, it would take an exceedingly long time. So. Netflix, yeah. if you're listening, I'd be happy to do it. But other, until that happens, I think I'll just uh, concentrate on my erotic thriller book. I'm into that. I'm totally into that. I think that's a great idea. I think that's great. I've, I've always wanted to just delve into that, just the genre of I, even erotic comedies, like that, because it's so, you know, the, it, but it was very flash in the pan kind of stuff because you, you know, you have all of the, teenage you know the porkies and the revenge of the nerds and all that kind of stuff that happened in the 80s but then you do have this plethora if you will of like john quinn at halsman you know you you have those types of movies and it's like man like no one's right no one's saving those no one's yeah david andrews kind of knocks on this door in his book soft in the middle where he talks about that 
in the 1980s, during the home video boom, a lot of independent film producers uh, who worked in genre films began quietly loading softcore content into their genre films as, you know, in a way of, they don't have stars in the movies. They don't have big explosions and right. spaceships and stuff. So what, what they, one of the things they can do to make the movies fly off the shelf is put in a little bit of nudity or softcore content. And you, you saw softcore being loaded into various genres, like you just indicated, like the beach movies, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. like Summer Job, Malibu Beach Girls. Absolutely. Malibu. There's, I, there's a whole subgenre of beach movies. I think there's, I think there's probably about 20 or 30, but there might be more. Mm -hmm. There yeah. might be more. And then there was all the sword and sandal movies like the Barbarian Queen and the Amazons. They started mm -hmm. experimenting with it. Deathstalker 2. Deathstalker 2. Good one. <laughs> uh, Jim Wynorski. Yeah. Monique Gabriel and John Terleski. Monique Gabriel and John Terleski. Yeah. Dashing John Terleski. Uh, and then there were the, um, remember all those remote boarding school movies? I think they oh, yeah. got the most exalted treatment in the movie Class. Yeah. Class. Pretty yeah. smart. Pretty smart. Uh, pretty of smart. I love pretty smart. Oh, ah, yeah. such a good movie. Uh, yeah, all that. Yeah, there's a bunch of those remote boarding school. One of them starring Phoebe Cates. Phoebe Cates. Yeah, that's um, that's private school. Private like, literally school. Literally private yeah. school. Yeah, and that's on so, my shelf. <laughs> yeah, preppies, preppies who cat Shay the who would become the director of Strip to Kill is in preppies. Mm -hmm. Chuck Vincent movie. So there's so there are all these sort of genre film types that began experimenting with it and stuff and so it seems like the erotic thriller was just sort of yet another genre film type that experimented with loading softcore content into it for market resilience but something special happened mm. i think something special happened with the erotic thriller that didn't happen as strongly in these other movies no. and it really took off as the premier genre the premier home video genre the dominant home video genre that sort of quietly loaded um and put erotic content into a traditional genre package i agree so you know and I, and i think we kill for love and the academic books were i think in many ways about what was special about it you know that made it such an interesting thing and i Absolutely. hope that's what people get out of watching the movie fantastic now where can people find you if they would like to follow you and where can people find we kill for love as well well, if you go to wekillforlove.com, you can find where to find the movie, whether it's streaming online or you can buy some of the, one of the few remaining Blu-rays from Vinegar Syndrome. Um, but while you're there, I would recommend uh, reading. I wrote a long, long essay on the erotic thriller for an Italian film journal called Lo Specchio Scuro, The Dark mm. Mirror. Mm. So... I wrote a really long article called Crimes of Desire, a case file on the erotic thriller. And it's very long, but it's get you know, it's more information than I could put in the movie. So it's probably like a taste of what a book would be on the genre. So I recommend that. And that's how you find me. And there's a you can get there's an Instagram account which I occasionally update for the movie. <laughs> this is true. I've so been stalking I have to figure it for out what a long to do. time. <laughs> I have to figure out what to do with the Instagram account. I'm just not sure. You know, I start putting more stuff on there related to the movie now that the movie's done. I'm not really promoting the movie anymore. I'm just kind of like more erotic thriller stuff. So 
Yeah, I'm into it. I'm absolutely into it. So if you guys would like to follow Manic Movie Monday podcast, you can do so on Instagram or Facebook. And first of all, big thank you so much for coming on the show, Anthony. I cannot thank you enough. This was just such a treat for me. I really love it. Thank you, Erin. It is so good to finally meet you. You've so been good to following finally the film meet you for so long. All right, my lovelies, stay manic. <laughs>